0: Hello and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Assad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. And today we're going back to 1996, up to a small town in Ontario, Canada. It's a clear Saturday night in September with an almost full moon. 15-year-old Melanie Nadia Ethier is having some innocent fun hanging out with friends. Her and her best friend meet up with Melanie's new boyfriend, Neil, plus three of his friends. They are going to rent a movie at a local video store and then find a place to watch it. They eventually decide to go to one of their houses, a house that is just 10 minutes away from Melanie's family's home. Towards the end of the night, the teens peel off one by one as their curfews approach. Melanie is the second to last to leave and says her goodbyes sometime between 30 and 2 o'clock in the morning. The friends that are left, including her boyfriend, watch her walk down Pine Avenue, and then they go back inside. But Melanie never returns home, and no crime scene nor trace of her has ever been found. She's been missing for 27 years. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate, a weekly true crime podcast in which Sadia and I attempt to uncover the ugly truth behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical.
1: Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these unfortunate situations whether or not these transgressions can be considered hate crimes. As will soon become clear, today's case appears to fit many of the criteria for a hate crime. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. For now, let's start simple with the details of the case. Asad, are you ready?
0: Yeah, Asad, before we begin, I just want to note that I'm on baby duty today and my daughter Isha just woke up from her nap. And so if you hear her in the background, she is just uh, joining the conversation. She
1: absolutely is. And also for listeners, I'm not feeling well. I either have cold or flu. I haven't figured it out yet. So my voice is raspy. So between Isha and my voice, I hope we can...
0: I don't know. I think it sounds a lot better, Sally. I think we should keep you oh sick the gosh, entire time. Oh my gosh, I said, just are you being mean to me? <laughs> I'm, just <kidding. laughs> I'm just kidding around. I'm just kidding around. You know, there was an episode of Friends, right? When she had the bad voice, but it made her sing a lot better. Phoebe, I think oh, it was.
1: Oh, maybe I should try singing with this voice. Yeah, let's, let's try it. Not right now, I said, maybe off mic.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah, Adia, this is the missing case of Melanie Ethier. Melanie is a responsible and independent girl and is often seen running errands around town. The day of her disappearance on September 29th, 1996, she runs into her best friend and together they run errands. They grab pizza, shop for ingredients to bake her grandmother a birthday cake, and pick up money she's owed for babysitting. Around 9pm, they decide to rent movies with her boyfriend of three weeks and some of his friends. All of them are from the local English-speaking high school, which is different from the French-speaking one that Melanie went to. They head back to one of the friends' houses, but are told they can't watch the movie there. Next, they try Melanie's house, where her grandma is visiting with her mom in the living room. Melanie asks if her friends can stay and watch the movie in her bedroom instead, to which her mom replies that, you know, it's awfully messy. No, they can't stay there. So Melanie and her friends leave and then they run into yet another friend. They walk around for a bit and then they eventually end up at one of their houses, a person named Ryan, who lives on a street called Pine Avenue, just 10 minutes away from where Melanie lives.
1: So this town seems quite small, Asid. They've already run into several friends, right?
0: Yeah, so Sadia, the town, New Liskurd, is only about forty four hundred people at the time. It's on the border of Ontario and Quebec and is known for agriculture and its secluded nature. Also Melanie has a lot of friends there and is outgoing, and given that her mom is a single mom and that she herself is like a second mom to her much younger sister, Melanie is probably pretty mature for her age. So back to September 29th, the teens are quietly watching the movie in Ryan's basement while his parents are in the bedroom. And just to note that no drinking or drugs were involved as far as anybody uh, is aware of. But by 1 a.m., two of the friends have left separately. And we find out later that the only other female, her best friend, is approached by a car on her walk of white and pale colored Monte Carlo. It appears to be occupied by two young men. The incident frightens her enough that she starts running to a better lit area then proceeds safely to where her ride is waiting. Melanie leaves next, her boyfriend and their friend Ryan remaining behind. And you know, Sadia, the phone service at Melanie's house was actually recently cut because of an unpaid phone bill. So she can't call home for a ride But, you know, it doesn't really matter to her so much because it's a short walk, as I mentioned, just, you know, 10 minutes away. It's essentially just going through three intersections across a bridge and then through a little back alley right by our house. But just to note, the route is really poorly lit and fairly busy. Melanie's mom, Celine, only realizes she's missing the next morning when Melanie's alarm clock wakes her. She assumes Melanie has slept over one of her friend's house and had no way of calling her since, you know, the phone service was cut. But, you know, Melanie is pretty reliable and nothing like this really happens. And so when Melanie is still not home for her grandmother's birthday celebration, Celine goes to a nearby Tim Hortons, you know, local donut shop and uses their phone to try to track her down. When Melanie doesn't show up for her daycare job at one o'clock, that's when Celine calls the police. Here is a clip of Celine talking about that final time she saw Melanie.
1: So as soon as I said, your room's a mess, like, let's go, guys. And she said it with a smile. So, that was the last thing I saw of her, then they walked out. So, she was in a good mood when she left the house. I walked to the sidewalk and I looked at them walk away and then I asked myself what am I doing here? That was, I've never done that before, but I guess it was the last time I saw her. That is so sad. I said, can you tell us more about who Melanie was?
0: Yeah, so Sadia Melanie was born in Canada to a white mother and a black father. Her mother was only 18 when she was born and returned to college 10 days after giving birth. Her father returned to Botswana, where he was from, though her parents were on good terms, apparently. She is raised by Celine and also has a sister, Jessie, as we mentioned, who is five at the time of her disappearance. The family struggles financially, but are close, happy, and resilient. Melanie is one of three black girls in the town. She's an honor student, speaks two languages, has lots of friends, and enjoys dancing. She also really loves kids and works at a daycare attached to her high school. She's described as bubbly, well-behaved, and super responsible, in charge of opening and closing the daycare alone. When she's older, she wants to become a teacher. In 1996, she's in the 11th grade. She's five foot five and approximately 120 pounds. Her mom says there's nothing that she couldn't have done in life.
1: It sounds like she has a really good head on her shoulders and is in a safe community. I said I can't imagine she had. Any enemies.
0: None that anyone knows of. She was not known to get into any trouble, Sadia.
1: But you know what? Sometimes you don't even know who is planning stuff against you. And this is so sad. It just breaks my heart. So what happens after she goes missing?
0: Yeah, so the search begins the day Melanie is found to be missing. It is expedited perhaps because she is such a good kid and something is clearly wrong. Police retrace the route she would have taken home, they check surveillance along it, they canvass nearby homes, and they question all of the friends that were with her the night that she went missing. All of them pass polygraphs. Soon after, dogs are brought in and search and rescue scour the river under the bridge that she would have crossed, but the dogs don't find anything. And nothing of Melanie's is ever recovered that Celine knows of. A credible witness, though, says they spotted her walking across the bridge the night before. Another witness claims they had seen her walking alone and unbothered. One person claims to have heard a girl screaming that night. And yet another claims to have seen her on the sidewalk of the bridge where a car with two young men coerced her into the car, though police don't consider this account reliable. And just to note, the town that she was living in, Sadia, is located close to the Trans-Canada Highway, making for a quick escape by car if needed.
1: Oh my gosh, I said that's so true. There is lack of evidence. And to imagine that all of this happened in a small town and nobody knew what exactly happened. This is just mind boggling to me.
0: Yeah, sadly. So this case is unusual for its lack of evidence. It rocks the small town. How did nobody see exactly what happened? How is her body never found? It's just like, where is the evidence? Where is her body? Where where is anything? And you know, so they offer a reward and still nothing has ever come of it. There have been many potential sightings of Melanie's and theories as to what went down over the years, but the task force in charge disbands in 1998, but they also have two officers that look into leads for years, and those two officers and others interrogate over 300 potential suspects. Details from the crime have been submitted to PowerCase, which is a newish case management system that alerts detectives to similar circumstances in other investigations. And, you know, Savia, as of 2010, over 700 tips from 500 witnesses have rolled in. And remember, this was just a town with 4,400 people. So a lot of tips coming in.
1: Yeah, for a long time, states in the U.S. didn't report details of crimes to other states, which to me is stupid, because it did make a lot of criminals get away with interstate transgressions. Our national crime database was established in 1967. But the system is much needed, and I'm glad it was established, even though late.
0: Yeah, so side there for as many tips and witnesses as there are few seem to be verified by police the ontario provincial police also known as the opp who took over the case remain incredibly tight-lipped to preserve the integrity of the investigation all they've really said is that she was likely lured into a vehicle and killed as she had no reason to want to leave the town in 2020 So just recently, the OPP declassified some of Melanie's best friend's accounts of the suspicious vehicle that was seen. But that friend has remained anonymous, rarely speaks to the media, and now lives overseas. The only quote I could find from the investigators was an account by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police saying that, quote, all evidence and data collected to date would indicate that Melanie Ethier has met with foul play at the hands of person or persons unknown.
1: So weak. Even after 27 years, I'm not sure how I feel about police holding details close to the West for this long when their investigation has yielded so little. Like 27 years is a long time.
0: Yeah, so the OPP says that they don't want whoever is responsible to know what, if any, evidence they have technology, amongst other things, has kept the case in the public eye. And if they reveal too much, they think it can be difficult for police to authenticate info.
1: So I said, if the police aren't seeing anything other than foul play likely occurred, what are some of the theories going around the town?
0: Yeah, well, her boyfriend actually gets a lot of blame for not walking her home. He is called a murderer for years which is you know just awful uh, but you know they only dated for three weeks and police seem to have cleared everyone who was with her that evening in addition to the suspicious vehicle that approached her best friend a girlfriend of one of the three boys who they'd run into before heading to ryan's house says she is stopped on the street by a white van that night And that person says that she was asked for directions by two unkempt men, indicating they were from out of town and is frightened when her dog starts barking loudly. The same van and one of the men inside are also seen by an employee of a video store where Melanie and her friends rented that movie. He
1: didn't look like he was in there looking for a movie. He just looked out of place and he gave me the heebie-jeebies. Um, And I even thought to myself, I'm going to get a license plate number. So I looked out the window, but where the van was parked, the light was out above it. So I couldn't
0: see anything. So, yeah, so this employee is spooked enough to call her dad for a ride home that night after work. Police come into the store to verify that Melanie and her friends had been there, but never questioned this employee. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll cover even more thoughts on what might have happened to Melanie. This is Invisible Hate.
1: Welcome back to Invisible Hate. I said you were going to share some theories on what happened to Melanie.
0: Yeah, so sadly, oddly enough, Melanie has a few lookalikes who live in town or nearby, which may account for supposed sightings of her that were inaccurate or a case of mistaken identity. The most feasible story lies with a girl named Sarah who lives on Pine Avenue where Ryan's house is. She allegedly owes a drug dealer money and thinks someone is out to get her.
1: Then on September 27th, 1996, less than 48 hours before
0: Mel's disappearance, Sarah told one of her other friends that she owed some money to local drug dealers and was afraid that if she didn't pay off her debts, they'd kill her. Sarah even went so far as to tell this friend that it wouldn't be a surprise if she went missing that following weekend. And there's another theory, Sadia. Celine, you remember that's Melanie's mom, has long suspected Dennis Lavelle, the boyfriend of her childhood friend Sylvie Chartrand, and a friend of the FEA family. This guy, Dennis, turns out to be a child predator and brings up the investigation with Celine often. Around three days after Melanie disappears, Dennis drives Celine to a psychic and shows her nail marks down his arm that he claims are from him and Melanie, quote, play fighting saying that Melanie would have fought hard against whoever took her. The scratches look recent, though Dennis claimed he'd been fishing the weekend she disappeared and hadn't seen Melanie. About 10 years after the disappearance, Dennis actually lures Melanie's younger sister into a hotel room, strips naked, and makes inappropriate comments to her. Yeah, really crazy stuff. Twice he calls Celine, saying he is suicidal, and she thinks he is going to confess to murdering Melanie, but he never does. Celine and him set up a time to talk, but shortly beforehand, he has a stroke and he dies. He is never investigated by police before his death.
1: This to me sounds so bizarre. I mean, how can you explain that odd behavior?
0: So, Sadia, there are a bunch of theories that they think happened. One is that Melanie was sex trafficked, another that she was abducted by her estranged father, another is that she drowned in the river, and another is that she was hurt by friends she was hanging out with that night, and all of them seem to have been ruled out.
1: So I said, do we think this was a hate crime?
0: Yeah, so sadly, early in her disappearance, it is considered that it was likely racially motivated. Like I said, she was one of three black girls in town, and there are active white supremacists in the area in the 1990s, including some that committed murder about 20 minutes away a couple months before she was abducted. It's a strong enough theory that the two other black girls are actually monitored by police just in case they are targeted. Celine, however, feels that Melanie didn't encounter much prejudice in town. Another of the black girls and Melanie's sister remark that it was hard to grow up there, though. Also, several girls were approached by strange vehicles that night, and they weren't all people of color.
1: This is a tricky one, said You're right. On the one hand, she is one of the three black girls in town, as you mentioned, and there are active white supremacists in the area in the nineties, right? So that makes me think it may be racially motivated, but if it was happening to other girls who weren't all of color, then it may just be a random act of violence perpetrated against Melanie. So I'm not sure Asad, I'm on the fence. But where does the case stand today?
0: Yeah, so sadly, surprisingly, it's considered active, and there's still a $50,000 reward for info leading to an arrest and conviction. Some of Melanie's missing posters were still up as of 2020. The story is kept in the headlines by a bunch of things, uh, including the podcast, including a YouTube series a spiritual medium new technology and a local group that is really committed to uh, solving missing persons cases across canada as for celine who still lives in that same town she runs a facebook group that's called let's work together to find melanie with almost fifteen thousand members as of 2021 sadia she's been receiving tips every day saying she's heard just about everything from Melanie being burned to dropped in a mine to put in a wood chipper. She's felt that Melanie was dead since day three of the investigation and that Dennis is likely responsible, but ultimately just wants to find Melanie's remains and give her a place of rest. She said the ongoing case has felt like one long funeral. Yeah, so there are a lot of ways that you can help. I think the biggest thing is you can check out Celine's Facebook page. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And we'll also have a link for you to be able to report anything directly if you have any information about this case.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Hate. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at InvisibleHatePodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Refillion Media and Immigrantly. We would like to thank our team, which includes Emmanuel Monahan, Michaela Strather, Lindsay Gamble and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until next time, I'm Sadia Khan.
0: I'm Asad Bar.